Abolition. Abolition. Uh, it is an honor today uh, to be gathered here and, and to be surrounded uh, in, in the halls and in the chamber by so many uh, who are gathered to celebrate the rich culture and accomplishments of black Americans. Uh, I'm wearing a pin from the Moulin Rouge, the historic uh, establishment in Las Vegas that is just one part of that uh, amazing history. I think it's also important to note that for many of us here today, uh, that history begins on slave ships. The Spanish brought African slaves to St. Augustine, Florida in 1565, and the English ship known as the White Lion initiated the black slave trade in America in 1619 when about 20 Africans were sold on the shores of Virginia. We're not the only ones to face these horrors. This resolution was heard just a couple of days ago on Tribes Day at the legislature, and indigenous people were also enslaved by English colonizers. But it's important to understand that most of the black people in this chamber and in the halls today are descendants of slaves, myself included. Ours is a history of resistance and resilience in the face of generations of trauma so intense that it's hard to truly fathom. And today, we say no more. We say never again. May the passage of this resolution and the unequivocal rejection of slavery and involuntary servitude in this state be one more step forward in a journey towards justice and joy for all. Today, let's make history together. Thanks, Mr. Speaker.
you just heard Nevada passes Assembly 23, and that was Assembly. Nevada Assemblyman that was Howard Watts III. 2023, yes. Yeah. <laughs> From Assemblyman Howard Watts III, and that was followed up by the Staples Singers, Why Am I Treated So Bad? And today, a weekly syndicated online radio program focused on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major streaming platforms and also on Amazon Music. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Brother Yusuf. I am here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, streaming live with you on this Memorial Day Eve. So last week in a special extended broadcast, we played the vast majority of clips of testimony from the committee hearing on HB 211 in Louisiana. It was a deep dive to hear with your own ears the thoughts, concerns, and priorities of elected officials in regard to a simple question. Do we want the globally illegal activities of slavery and involuntary servitude embedded in the state constitution? What you'll hear will blow your mind. Huh? So, foremost for this week, welcome to the, you know, I call it an international broadcast. Not that we haven't had listeners from all other parts of the world, but this is the first time that one of us is outside of the continental U.S. You know, I took a little time away, and I'm in Puerto Rico, blasting off from San Juan, Puerto Rico today. And as we continue our season four theme of introducing the new breed, This week, we're joined by formerly incarcerated and exonerated activist Marcus Kelly to discuss his abolition efforts in Nevada and Missouri. Assembly Joint Resolution 10, that's AJR 10, has passed through all committees and is on the ballot. In 2024, Nevada citizens will have the opportunity to abolish slavery in that state for the first time with a simple vote taking this issue out of the hands of legislatures and letting the people decide if they want slavery as a punishment for crime embedded in their constitution or not. And as always, we'll mix in music, poetry, powerful, insightful commentary, and bring the voices of the abolitionist ancestors back to life for a new generation with our Bridging the Gap series. This is Memorial Day in a slave state of mind with guest Marcus Kelly. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Max, uh, comments on the opening track, and how was your week, bro? Um, the opening track, uh, I think, was powerful. Um, Assemblyman Howard Watts III um, spoke very eloquently about the subject matter and the issue. Um, And as we all know, on that day, it passed assembly, so his peers agree with him. And it continued to move forward until we are at where we are now, where it is on the ballot for 2024. So that's an amazing feat right there. 
adding another state to the list that allows the people to decide whether or not they want slavery in their constitution. And, of course, the staple singer is, why am I treated so bad? It's the question we always seem to ask, like, why do we have to go through this all the time? Uh, Reminds me of the testimony that was coming out of Louisiana and, like, what Representative Knox was saying, the problem is certain people here just don't care about black people. Right. (laughs) You know, they just don't care. We're like, this matters to us a great deal. Um, because of what we've been through and are still going through, and they're like, well, how much is it going to cost us? <laughs> you know? Right. And here we are on the eve of Memorial Day. And, you know, I would like to share the origins of a Memorial Day, how it began. Um, please do. Yeah, please. Like the, like the Constitution, most people don't know. Um, one of the first, memori- one of the very first Memorial Day celebrations was on May 1st, 1865. When black workmen gathered at the Washington Race Course and Jockey Club in Charleston, South Carolina, which the Confederates had converted into an out, which the Confederates had converted into an outdoor prison, Yale University historian David W. Blight tells us these men reinterred the bodies of Union prisoners of war buried there, decorated their graves, built a high fence around the cemetery whitewashed the fence and built an archway over the entrance. Later that day, they staged a parade of 10,000 people on the track. The procession was led by 3,000 black school children carrying armloads of roses. Several hundred black women followed with baskets of flowers, wreaths, and crosses. And that was the first Memorial Day celebration. And look who was leading. Look who created it. And look right. where they created it, in a place that had been converted into an outdoor prison. Mm. Then uh, an interesting wow. week, too, Yusuf, you know, uh, with, uh-huh. all of these, with all of these bills that are going through. We've had some meetings with legislators as well as with the ASNN to try to um, get a hold on things, especially these exception clauses to the exception clauses, you know. Uh, right. We're hoping that come Tuesday when Louisiana goes to the Senate that they remove this ridiculous exception that turns it into nothing more than a symbolic gesture Um, and we don't want it to be that slavery is just as real as you and I and we want the solution to it to be just as real as well right all right well we got a great guest coming in today Uh, we met brother Marcus Kelly while we were out in Las Vegas, um, there mm-hmm. at the BISC conference. And my man was like, I've been trying to get in touch with y'all. I'm like, I've been trying to get in touch with you. You know, long we were talking <laughs> about we, we can't get in touch with anybody from the right. Nevada campaign. From Nevada. Right. Yeah. So he, he is here with us today. Uh, if you'd like to read his uh, introductory bio, uh, I'll go ahead and unmute him and we can bring him in. Oh, for sure. So we're joined by Marcus Kelly, experienced organizer and advocate with a strong background in strategic planning, who managed and organized a multi-week hunger strike while incarcerated. A victim of wrongful conviction and later diagnosed with PTSD as a result of prison culture, he desires to use his personal experience as someone directly affected to bring awareness to prisoner mental health and assist with the reform 
and restoration of returning citizens. Everyone, let's welcome our brother, Marcus Kelly, to Abolition Today. Hey, thank What's you. What's going on, brother Marcus? Uh, how you doing? Thank you for having me. Can you doing, hear me? Doing great. Doing great. Glad to have you on, brother. Yes, we can hear you. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah. Uh, so yes, of course. I've, I've been trying to uh, trying to get in touch with you guys for a while. Um, I I kind of started my journey as I as I mentioned in my bio. Um, with uh, when I had the audacity to stand up for myself for uh, not wanting to eat food with maggots and um, wanting education. And um, so I began organizing while I was in prison um, to, you know, just, just to stand up for, for myself and others who uh, didn't know how before, to advocate for be, themselves. Before you get further, let's focus in on what you just said just there about the maggots and stuff in the food. That was a particular company that was doing that, correct? Aramark? Yes, it was Aramark. Right. Aramark was responsible for a number of issues like that across the the country, including rat poison in food, maggots in food, expired food that was being sent out, and they were expecting you to eat that, like you were some kind of pig or something eating up slop. Yeah. Right. And and if you wrote, and if you made a complaint about it, like I did, I was placed in solitary confinement for months at a time. Um, we we eventually uh, through the hunger strike, we was we was able to eventually get rid of Aramark uh, out of Michigan. You were able to get the Aramark company out of the prison um, system there. Yes, uh, they're no, they're no longer operating in the state of Michigan anymore. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh by the way, you are multi state in this issue right now. As you just mentioned, uh Michigan, uh, where you're also working out there with Brother Edmund, right? Uh, and Correct. also in Nevada, uh, where you worked on uh what was it, H uh no H B T A R T N. Yes. Yes. And now in Missouri too, right? Yes. Yes. All right, um, can, continue, uh I may, you know, get in in there because I want our people to understand like the details of what's, what we're talking about here, what happened, you know. Okay, yeah, I understand. Um, so when I first started my journey, um, as far as understanding about slavery and involuntary servitude being in the Constitution, I had to understand that first by um, advocating for the mental health of people incarcerated and those returning. Because when I got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is uh, which is a embodied in post-incarceration syndrome uh, as a result of prison culture, I was trying to figure out why would they allow this particular culture to happen, and where did it derive from? And then I went, I went through a history lesson. I realized um, the Thirteenth Amendment added the you know the section clause. You know, uh, if you're convicted of a crime, and they, they made it legal to do so, and then the states made it legal. So um, while I was bringing awareness to mental uh, health issues, um, I started advocating uh, to, you know, to remove slavery and voluntary servitude. So I started having a conversation uh, via the change-up um, as I was work as I was organizing with Make It Work Nevada, and um, you know, kind of met up with different 
different organizations to have a conversation. It's funny you mentioned, you mentioned Howard Watts. He's a great guy. Um, Howard Watts is really great. Uh, he actually uh, helped me, um, you know, go a little further uh, through it with those conversations, uh, got people to lean on uh, people like the Attorney General Ford and um, hooked up with Mass Liberation Nevada, and we just all kind of came together and uh, just kind of rallied around that particular issue and said, no more, we don't want it anymore. And um, so it was like a, at that particular time, it was a no-brainer after we educated everybody that this do exist and that as a result of this, people were being mentally tortured uh, behind bars and, and being returned home, starved, such as myself. Torture, crimes against humanity. Right. Yes. Um, Michigan, or rather not Michigan, sorry, uh, Nevada has uh, quite the criminal justice system going on over there. Uh, I believe you said you pulled up some of the data on what's going on in Nevada, right? Right. So just to break it down, uh, in Nevada, it's 713 per 100,000 in prison. There are seven state prisons. They operate nine conservation camps, and they also send incarcerated people out to Eloy Prison, the private prison run by Core Civic out in Arizona. They have a $298 million budget, so $300 million. The cost per incarcerated is 22000 for in-state and 30000 for out-of-state. Uh, you have uh, 4,700 on parole, 8,700 on probation, 8,000 in jails, 10,000 in state, 1,300 in federal. But then we would get into the racial breakdown. 8% blacks make up 8% of the state population, but 29% of the prison population. Whites make up 54% of the state population, but only 44% of the prison population. Uh, Latinx, 27% of the state, 23% of the prison population. Asian, 7% of the state population, 2% of the prison population. And this one really threw me. So they say natives make up 1% of the state population, but 2% of the prison population. Making it seem as though that it's more in prison than they are walking the streets out there. Well, per capita for sure, it's double their population. And the only one that's worse than that is the black population, which is triple its population, more than triple its population. Right. right. You know, some other stuff that I saw that was really interesting, uh, Nevada is referred to as the silver state, and they have silver state industries. So these are the, this is the all of the different things that are manufactured inside of prisons in Nevada. So the rundown, you have, there's a printing and bindery shop, there's a mattress factory, a garment sewing factory, drapery sewing shop, there's automobile refurbishing and repair, motorcycle manufacturing and repair, there's also uh, used playing card recycling operations, so you know what that means that these playing cards are going right back to the casinos. And they also have private businesses utilizing the incarcerated as part of the prison industry programs, 
where they have 500 working in that population as well. Uh, they also obtained 1,100 acres of land near Carson River. This is where they, uh, they uh, engage in milk, livestock, hay pro uh, production, wild horse boarding and training. So it's so much going on inside of these prisons that it's a whole industry that's going on behind prisons, generating millions of dollars. And another article that I came across that really surprised me, they, had, they have this huge wheel that's like a big Ferris wheel-looking contraption out there in Las Vegas, part of the skyline. And this company called Alpine, uh, Alpine Steel, LLC, used prison labor to construct it. They used one of the jails and they ran up a tab of uh, $401,000, you know, and they had not paid for the facilities or 78000 in the incarcerated salaries. So there's so much going on in these uh, Nevada prisons. And it just surprised me when I heard that, uh, I believe this bill passed unanimously, correct? Correct, and that it doesn't stop there. Um, they use the prison, the prisoners to actually fight fires, to where um, you know the the, the forest yeah. fires and stuff like that, to where a lot of people they put them on the front lines, and a lot of uh, people was being injured, um, getting diseases later. And in one particular case, a guy um, who was he had six months left to go home, and he got injured on the job and try to get work in this comp uh, when he got out, and they was only giving him $22.50 a month. So he took mm -hmm. it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, well, uh, uh, per the prison system, you was only making $30 a month, so you only required to give you $22.50 a month. And, you know, and it's disgusting, to say the least. But the, 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 the terrible thing about the prison labor, uh, the slavery, the involuntary servitude part of it is that if you don't take these jobs, then you can't go home. So it's a, it's a difference between they make you choose between going home or working. <laughs> it's, just, it's just disgusting. Yeah, uh, people walk out of those prisons in debt too from medical fees and things like that. They have like what is a fifty dollar copayment, uh, which yeah. is the equivalent of four hundred dollar copayment for a person outside making like fifty grand a year, um, considering yeah. what they're making. Yeah, uh, and yeah. the commissary they had to make a law to reduce how much the commissary could be priced upwards. Uh, so they tried to five percent. But nonetheless, the commissary was making $3 million in 2021 just from profits. Yeah, and um, and that's see, and that's because they have Aramark in Nevada, too. They, they even went so far as to get Aramark inside of UNLV. Um, but, you know, I was a part of the hunger strike they did in December of last year at the, um, at the Ellie prison. E-L-Y prison, um, mm -hmm. they went on a hunger strike there as well, um, you know, striking against Aramark um, and, you know, um, and a plethora of uh, civil rights and uh, human rights abuses um, for those same uh, reasons. Now, um, the thing is, um, one of the things is that, that, that baffles me is 
they make you work all these jobs. Like some people work at work for Victoria's Secrets and things like that. And, that was here in South you know, Carolina. Yes. So $22.50 a month, you have to determine on if you're going to spend $4 on a bar of soap. That's gonna, I hope that lasts you by the end of the month. Or 5 or $6 to make a phone call. You got to choose between calling your child or your wife if you're married or buying you some soap and deodorant, uh, and, and, which is terrible. Um, but it's a way of, isolate, it's a way of isolating uh, people in a, uh, in a way that, that creates, again, uh, you know, a mental illness. And it's uh, late. Speaking of wives, <laughs> um, like myself, you, are, uh, you have a, a couple teams. Uh, that works on these issues together, right? Correct. Um, you want to give a shout out to her, maybe, and tell us a little bit about what you guys do together? Oh, putting the brother on the oh, spot. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. She gonna be like, um, why? Why he <laughs> have to say something to you about shouting me out? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, special shout out to uh, Erica Washington. That's my wife. Um, she. Uh, She's executive director of Make It Work Nevada, which is a black women's economic, social, and reproductive justice organization. Um, I'm proud to say that, um, you know, upon marrying, upon marrying me, um, she became my mentor um, in, in organizing, and I've learned a lot from her. Um, and it's her organization that has helped me to be able to build a platform to bring awareness to post-incarceration syndrome and spark and, and, and expand into um, advocating to remove slavery and involuntary servitude about organizing um, my uh, people in a change-up and going out and organizing the communities and leaning on the public officials. So it was through uh, Make It Work Nevada, which is my wife's organization, that was um, able to be in a position to do so. So shout-out to them. Amen to that. Um, quick question. You represent not only the uh, formerly incarcerated, but also a subsection of the incarcerated, which is the wrongfully convicted. And um, you're dealing with, as you said, PTSD. Uh, I know that after spending decades or even just a decade in prison, people come out with this PTSD. But is it different for someone who was innocent all along and wrongfully convicted? Because there's as many as 240,000 people like you wrongfully convicted. So is it is it different? Um, I would say my uh, my experience was different. Um, it's one thing knowing that she was guilty of something, going into it and and trying to figure it out. It's another thing when you're sitting there trying to figure out why am I here? And um, you hear people, you know, all the time talking about uh, crime and punishment, crime and punishment. But what about the person who didn't commit the crime? And I think a lot of people kind of miss those things. To have somebody forced, uh, reduced to eating maggots or rat poison or uh, being threatened by correctional officers uh, that we that they're gonna make somebody stab you because you stand that you want a book and that you want education. Those things is 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 it. it, it it, it, it kind of weighed on me heavily. And when you think about post-incarceration syndrome, um, 
it's a mint is is a is mixed it's a mixed disorder with four clusters and symptoms. You know, one is institutionalized personality traits, which results from the common deprivations of incarceration, a chronic state of learned helplessness in the face of prison authorities and antisocial defenses in dealing with a predatory inmate culture. And when you put PTSD with that, it's from both pre incarceration trauma and trauma experience within the institution. Um, so it's a whole, it's, 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 a, it's a plethora of clusters, more mainly four that goes on with it, and just coming in there as somebody who's innocent, it kind of, it kind of puts that much on because I, I lost a lot. I lost my mother. Uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to raise my children, and I had to sit in there for nine years until they overturned my conviction. And here it is, it's four years later, and they're still trying to fight. They don't want to pay me. They're still trying to fight. Mm-hmm. fight of what I deserve and uh, well, well he could have been guilty of this and it, it's just um, you know they won't even let their foot up it's like you know it's I mean it's horrible and I've seen some of the most some of the most inhumane horrible things in, in, in prison you know when you imagine uh, being going back to your room and knowing that there's a group of guys going to come stab your cellmate and kill him but you can't tell him because then that makes you a part of it, and now you fight for your life, and you might die. So you sitting there, and you go, uh, and once it happens, you go out on a visit with your family, and you can't even talk about it. So you have to put the. It's like shutting down emotionally to survive it, and then when you go home, you're trying to turn those emotions back on and forget everything you learned in there, and that makes it hard. Because I realized I wasn't the same person no more that I was when I went in prison. You had to adapt to the environment. Yeah. And uh, um, right. Um, one other thing I want to ask you about in this same line of uh, inquiries is uh, we've had people on the show who called in from inside prisons. Some of them are admittedly guilty of the crimes that they've committed. Some of them very tragic crimes, um, but they often don't mention those who are wrongfully convicted. I've had. Uh, and activists too on the outside, um, you know, they won't even consider that people may be innocent, and it kind of makes the narrative worse because it feeds into the assumption that everybody who gets thrown in a cell is guilty as charged. And America makes no mistakes; it doesn't. It's a you know, it's infallible. Uh, but when you keep, I keep thinking to myself, there's like a quarter million people who have never committed any crime whatsoever, and they're sitting in these cells like you like Khalif Browder, like um, the brother, uh, what was his name, um, that we had on the program uh, here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Yusuf, Ricky Kidd. Uh, Ricky, yeah, Ricky right. Kidd. Ricky Kidd and Kenneth Strickland and the Angola Three, and the list goes on, you know. Um, so... Um, when it comes to, you know, to being able to be the voice of people who have been formerly incarcerated or are presently incarcerated, do you think that there's two conversations that need to be had? Or can either of you, um, those who are wrongfully convicted and those who are paying for their crimes, can you both speak to the issue equally the same way and feel like you're representing all of them? Um. That's 
That is actually an interesting question. Um, oh, I, I can honestly say that um, I guess in one sense I would have probably thought that it would be two separate conversations because it's about what about the innocent. But that that would probably be a conversation to that person that, that says, okay, he's incarcerated, so he must be guilty of something. So that would be that person who can kind of disassociate himself and or herself and say um, if they're incarcerated, then they, then they are deserving of uh, rape and, and food with maggots or whatever is right. going behind prison. Right. So to that person, yeah, is to have that conversation. Dude, then do I deserve that too? But then to the world in its entirety, I don't think you separate. You can separate that because um, – a human being is still a human being, whether he made a mistake or whether he's innocent of it or whatever. Nobody mm-hmm. should be forced to eat maggots. Nobody should be put in positions where officers, and not just officers, but officers kind of paved the way for that particular person to be raped or forced to work or you won't go home. You know, nobody should have to go there, whether you're going home or not. You know, and um, so I would, I would have to say – you. I, I couldn't separate it, but to that person who thinks that somebody who commits a crime is deserving of what Tyree Nichols had got, um, who was an innocent man who they saw get beaten, killed on the street, um, then I would ask him, what about me? Or what about if that happened to your child or yourself? Do you think you're deserving of that? Yeah, and and I think – to a degree, like you said, there has to be some separation because, like when you get out, uh, some brothers and sisters will say, "Well, I have paid for my crimes. I'm done. I paid for my crimes." But people like yourself and wrongfully uh, convicted can say, "I have paid for your crimes because you're the one yeah. that committed the crime on me." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. About that, that. yeah. That humanity has committed a crime against me in this city. I can, I can, I can see that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because you know, I, nobody ever posed that question to me that in that way. Because um, I'm, I'm always be under the impression that an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere, and I don't think, I don't think the system, the way this current system is set up, they, they I don't think they care about um, if a person's guilty or not. It's about I think they care more about who can tell the best lie and how many beds they can fill. You know what I'm saying? Because um, the more bodies, the more uh, uh, you know, the more bodies, the more money they can get. And people that's invested means they they can make more money. So I don't, you know, so when you put um, capitalism over human rights, you can always have involuntary servitudes mm-hmm. and injustices. Well, and injustices. You know, in Nevada, you guys got some heavy hitters that came up to bat for you uh, for your slavery abolition bill. One of them was the Nevada Attorney General himself, Aaron Ford, yeah, who testified in favor of AJR Chance. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, I've got his testimony here, and I want to share it with you and our audience. We, I'm sure we, you we heard have it to already. listen to that. But I would like to share it with our audience because, as I said, you know, this is important when you've got attorney generals uh, testifying to end slavery. So we're going to go ahead and play that. 
And uh, when we come back on the other side, I want you to tell us that story uh, once again about how they used the loudspeakers to try to kill you. Um, you know which one I'm talking about, right? Uh, you talking about when they was uh, when they shut uh, shut the whole prison down, so everybody yeah. took, uh, they was taking away right. Yeah, I, I can give you Cause that. Because of you, yeah, I want to hear that oh, story yeah. on the other side. We need to hear that one. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Yusuf Hassan, Max Parthas, and Brother Marcus Kelly. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Good afternoon, uh, Chairman Orenshaw, members of the committee, um, Senator Canazaro, Leader Canazaro in her absence, Senator Lang, Senator Cephas Ganser, Senator Buck, great to see you all. Um, frankly, I miss uh, sitting up there sometimes, and I um, sometimes envy, but sometimes don't envy what it is you're, you're dealing with these days. Uh, great to see Mr. Stewart, who was my very first can, uh, committee manager, Natural Resources Committee, uh, Brian Fern, who I worked with quite a bit on judiciary, and your fabulous staff. Uh, great to see everyone. My name is Aaron Ford, and I am your Attorney General. Uh, I appear before you today to testify in favor of Assembly Joint Resolution 10, AJR 10, which seeks to remove language from the Nevada Constitution that authorizes the use of slavery and involuntary servitude as a criminal punishment. I apologize at the outset for repeating in my testimony some things you've already heard um, our uh, bill sponsor say, but frankly, I think it bears some repeating. Uh, and thanks again for allowing me to share my thoughts in support of this bill. Article 1, Section 17 of the Nevada Constitution currently states, and I quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude unless for the punishment of crimes shall ever be tolerated in this state. The clause in this section I just quoted, unless for the punishment of crimes, provides an exception, allowing for legalized slavery and involuntary servitude. And it employs the criminal justice system to do it. As I'll reference more in a second, a similar clause appears in the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And just as that clause undermines our United States Constitution, so does this clause undermine our very foundation upon which the great state of Nevada was built. Indeed, as its commentary states, uh, as a commentary states in 2016 film The 13th, an in-depth, which provides itself uh, as an in-depth look at the prison system in the United States and how it reveals the nation's history of racial inequality, the 13th Amendment's exception has permeated our society. But back to our state's founding, the Nevada Constitution was created with urgency in 1864, hence the battleborn state, as part of the uh, president's efforts to prevail in the Civil War, fought over slavery. The governor at that time, James Warren Nye, uh, deemed that neither train nor postal service was fast enough to deliver the handwritten Nevada Constitution to President Lincoln before the upcoming presidential elections. According to the Nevada State Library and Archives, Governor Nye authorized for the Nevada Constitution to be telegraphed across the continent to Washington, D.C. At a time, it was the most, at that time, it was the most expensive telegraph ever, costing $4,313.27, or in today's dollar, $59,229. After receiving the telegram, Lincoln proclaimed that Nevada was admitted to the Union. And as history reveals, the Union won the Civil War the very next year. While those in Nevada were actively trying to earn statehood, other areas of the country were struggling to end the practice of slavery and involuntary servitude, practices that were deeply ingrained in the social and economic fabric of states throughout the Union and what is now known as the former Confederate territories. 
but as has been shown, Nevada's penchant to do, it led the way, albeit with room for improvement. And to be sure, it was a precondition for admission to the Union that Nevada be a non-slave state. And parenthetically, I'll say that other preconditions were, first, freedom of religious worship, and secondly, a disclaimer of public land. But still, Nevada was one of those leading the way on the issue of slavery and involuntary servitude. Point in fact, the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which abolished slavery throughout the country, with with the certain exception, was ratified after the Nevada Constitution on December the 6th, 1865. The 13th Amendment utilized similar language that is in our Nevada Constitution, however, providing that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, comma, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. As stated previously, yes, it contains a similar exception to the one AGR 10 seeks to remove from our own Constitution. This language was often used for the purpose of circumventing the abolition of slavery. What is known as the, quote, black codes were enacted throughout America to punish and incarcerate the formerly enslaved for petty purposes, such as having to, imp- to prove employment every year or for violating early curfews. Once convicted, the government could then lease out inmates, extracting forced labor without pay. That is, states could convict lease. They could use that as a method of loaning or renting prisoners to companies for their private use. Notably, black prisoners were often rented or loaned out to former slave owners for labor. The prisoners would come back with having, uh, having severely been abused or oftentimes having deformities or other limitations. And some died. In my mind, that was really a way for racists to act out vengeance for no longer having the right to own people and enslave them. Moreover, it was the beginning of what commentators note as our culture's rebranding of black men from slave to criminal. For more on that, I commend to your reading a book by the author Douglas A. Blackman entitled Slavery by Another Name, The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. AGR 10 is designed to protect all groups from slavery and involuntary servitude. While black Americans are disproportionately represented in Nevada prisons, incidentally black people make up approximately 10.3% of Nevada's overall population and a little more than 31% of Nevada's prison population. There are, however, in sure numbers more white people in Nevada's prisons than any other ethnic racial group, with 42% of Nevada's prison population being white or Caucasian. Ultimately, I believe individuals of every race, color, creed will benefit from AGR 10. AGR 10 serves to rid us of the last vestiges of slavery. This clause in question is not only antiquated, but it is entirely unnecessary to achieve the criminal justice purposes of, among other things, punishment, deterrence, rehabilitation, and restoration. As I close, I want to share a personal story, some personal history, if you will introduce you to a gentleman named William Barry. Similar to Mr. Watts, I uh, come from a lineage of the formerly enslaved. William Barry was my fourth great-grandfather, born in Fordyce, Arkansas, in, 18, in the early 1800s, born as an enslaved individual. Uh, he was married with children, put on an auction block to be sold in Fordyce, Arkansas, and said he would not be sold. Stood up for his humanity said that his wife and children deserved to have a father, a, a husband and a father, and he protected his humanity. So they didn't sell him. They killed him right there on the auction block. 
and oral history of my family says that three of his sons were sold to a Texas slaver, uh, one of which was my third great-grandfather, uh, and I am the progeny of William Berry. His DNA runs through my veins to this day. And today, as Nevada's Attorney General, I continue his legacy and I fight for everyone's humanity. And today you can join me and members of the Nevada Black Caucus and thankfully every member of the Nevada Assembly in this fight for humanity by supporting AGR 10. I urge you to do so. It's the right thing to do. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Attorney General Ford, and thank you for everything you're doing for our state, uh, fighting, fighting for us on so many fronts. Abolition. You just heard Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford's testimony in favor of AGR 10, the slavery abolition bill. That was powerful. You know, Indeed. I've heard it a couple of times, but every time I hear it, I'm still moved even more, especially when he speaks about his fourth grandfather. You know, when I first heard him say, uh, well, he wasn't sold. And I was going to say, well, wow, you know, they let him get away with that. But then he said, and then they killed him, you know, right, right there, there on the auction, auction block. block. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, uh, Marcus, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on this, uh, on this track that we just played. Um, I, I, I can honestly say that when he actually got up there and – and he gave that testimony, I was moved, I felt um I was optimistic, I felt I felt liberation beginning. Um because that's a top cop. Um top lawyer, right. top cop. And right. he actually got up and said it without fear of losing his job. Um and and you know, he could have he could have danced around it, um, but he didn't. And so, um, yeah, I feel I, I felt great. I felt a, I felt a, a slight bit accomplished thus far in that moment. Uh, I was excited, <laughs> brought tears to my eyes. Actually, that's a great man. Yes, great oh, man, powerful testimony. I actually reached out to his office after that testimony to try to get him to come on the program, and they put me in touch with his assistants who said she would get the message up to him, but he never got back to me. Maybe you could help us with that in the future, because I'd love to bring him on the program. For sure. Yeah, I can do that. More uh, about uh, that yeah, program. Yeah, I'll give him a call. That would be awesome, um, because he, he would also be proud to know that his great fourth grandfather's home state of Arkansas also is trying to remove that slavery exception clause. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think he'd love to hear that as well. And maybe he can have some yeah. influence in that state's efforts. Uh, but as far as Nevada being one of those states that was before the 13th Amendment, um, I believe that there were five of them that had created these exception clauses prior to the 13th Amendment, and Nevada being the last one to do so. Um, I'd like to read Nevada's uh, slavery exception clause. So in 1854... <laughs> They put in neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, unless for the punishment of crimes, comma, shall ever be tolerated in the state. Article 1, Section 17. 
they knew in advance what this was all about because it had been perfected all the way back to 1777 with Vermont. Ohio did it. Oregon did it. Alabama did Mm it. Um, So all of these other states had practiced it as a way of shifting from chattel slavery to prison slavery, from the individual owning people to the state owning people and then enacting their convict leasing campaigns. I know in, in Alabama, prior to them putting in that exception, chattel slavery made approximately 90% of their GDP. But by 1870, convict leasing was making up 70% of their GDP. So it was a smooth transition from one form of slavery to another. Brother Marcus? Yes, I hear you. Anything you'd like to add to or say along those lines? Um, I, part of it part of went out. Uh, you said it was chattel slavery, and that's, all, that's the last I heard. Um, I was just saying that uh, there were five states that had used these exception clauses pri- prior to 1865, um, which also influenced the 13th Amendment, and each one of them had their own version of an exception clause. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were going to use a transferal from chattel slavery and an individual being able to own people to convict leasing under their (laughs) exception clauses with the state now taking control of human bodies. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, uh, So in in that sense... um, and in a sense, it, it, they, what they use is they use innovation, um, change the word uh, from plantations to prisons. Uh, cotton became people, um, and um, and, and there, that's why the environment of it is so is so violent. Is the culture of it is is the way it is because it was built on it. And if you think about it, um, if you didn't work on those plantations, you either got beat, placed in some kind of a um, cellar or, or sweat boxes, or uh, if you try to stand up for yourself, they, they did what they call breaking the buck by taking, maybe raping the strongest person of, in, um, of the group or hanging them. Uh, in today's prison system, which, which uh, is based on that, in my in my case, uh, when I went to stand up for myself and say I, I'm not eating food with maggots and I want education, I want job training, I want I want to be able to read books. Um, they 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 first they placed me in solitary confinement for months at a time, and then when I got out and went to another prison yard or another plantation, so to speak, they shut the whole prison system down where I, where I went and wouldn't let nobody come out of their cells or used phones and stuff and told them that they uh they would continue to um to rain wreak havoc is what they said on the PA system, uh wreak havoc on the entire population unless I stopped filing complaints against them. Um and they way of trying to break the book. They mentioned you by name when they did that, right? Yes. Yes. My whole inmate number, name and sale. And this because you were leading the hunger strike. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Because you didn't want to eat maggots and rotten food uh, and be treated like an animal, including torture in solitary confinement. How much time did you spend 
in solitary confinement. Uh, and how much time total uh, were you incarcerated? Uh, I spent nine years in uh, Michigan uh, Department of Corrections. In total, uh, in solitary confinement, I did, I would say, out of the nine years I spent in there, I would say at least, at least about seven months or eight months of it was spent in solitary confinement. Hmm. Uh, for our listeners, wow. those that may be a little confused, just walk into your bathroom if you have a normal bathroom. And close the door and imagine spending nine months right there um, in that area with no real human contact. That is right. Oh, that's too nice. That's, that's too nice. That's, that's a nice area. Imagine walking into four small walls. Would, and if you're lucky, you might have a small window that, that shine a little light in there, and it got feces and semen and, and urine and all that on the wall, covered on the walls and on the floors and they won't let you clean. They just throw you in there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so a regular bathroom is just too nice. It's too human. Um, I would say that what they did with you when they announced your name and put all of the inmates or tried to put all the inmates against you as attempted murder. Uh, it's something yeah. that goes on right. very often. Just what I was <clears> thinking. Throat> yeah. Throat> yeah. Yes. Uh, is that how you feel? Yes. Um, yes, it, it, it actually was. It um, only it did the re- only it did an adverse effect. What it did was when people actually seen what was actually happening, it actually empowered me. Because um, prior to that, uh, when they when they first sounded the alarm against me. Uh, they see me uh, organizing with the white supremacist organizations. Uh, they call themselves um, uh, Aryan Brotherhood. So mm-hmm. they see me, seeing me have them, the leader from the Aryan Brotherhood, the Nation of Islam, the Morris Morris Temple um, Christians. I have got all the big leaders on the yard together and had a, and had them all kind of organized together. Um, and when they seen that, they labeled me a threat. That is a huge accomplishment by yeah, itself. Right. Yes. Um, so when they seen that, that's when they, they, you know, and I was telling them, you know, um, in the sense that they had the same solitary confinement over there. We all eating the same food with maggots. We, if you want job training, if you want college, if you don't want to eat spoiled food or food with maggots or something, we need to stand together. Uh, whatever differences we have, we could deal with that another time. But right now, this, this affects all of us. And uh, they all agreed. At first, they agreed silently. But then when they came and put me in solitary confinement and, uh, and announced that over the PA, um, it kind of was started in Ken Ross facility uh, up north in, in Michigan prison in 2014. It eventually spread throughout the Michigan Department of Corrections. Amazing. That's, um, and go ahead, Yusuf. <laughs> you said exactly what I was going to say. That's just amazing. And, you know, I know we're coming up around the time that we do our music break, so I, I have a question that I want to start asking him about the pulse incarceration syndrome. But, I, you know, I, I can ask him that on the other side. Go ahead and ask him. We have some time. I'm not going to go into the music break just yet. Okay. So, uh, 
you were the one that even educated me about post-incarceration syndrome. I mean, we know that there's extreme PTSD, you know, associated with that, just as when, you know, our ancestors were released from the uh, plantations and just put out there and just expect there's this expectation that you're supposed to fit right in. And, you know, how did you deal with just making that transition from everything that you went through there and you coming home, trying to readjust, and then also what led you into that realm of your work with mental health? Um, to be honest with you, I'm, um, it's been spent three years, a little over three years now, and I'm still um, I'm still dealing with it. I still don't like being in confined areas. Um, uh, I still don't like having a bunch of crowds, a lot of people standing behind me. Um, I'm still I, so I still have panic attacks in those type of situations. Um, so um, I deal with it. Um, my way of kind of deal. Some people deal with it through drug abuse or alcohol abuse or homelessness, and I deal with it through talking about it and educating people about it. And um, mm-hmm. so that's, you know, that's how I, that's how I, I find myself dealing with it. I, I, I find, like, I, figure, I figure if I can help somebody else and bring awareness to it, then people actually know what actually goes on inside there. Um, because um, the thing with post-traumatic stress disorder, you might have it, uh, throughout the duration of your life prior to prison. But then when you go into prison, it's exacerbated because of the culture of it. Or if you didn't have it, then you will get it. And then once you leave prison, you've been in the culture so long that it becomes a part of you. So making that adjustment to normal life, a human life outside of prison, it makes it hard to do it because you always thinking that if somebody's shaking your hand or or somebody that got a hidden agenda, um, mm-hmm. because that's the life that you was used to. You was always guarded, and you was shut down. And it's hard to kind of feel again because you shut your emotions and feelings off to be able to survive it. And in my case, it was for nine years. I had to not think about my family, not think about my children. I had to think about what was going on today and fighting my case as well, and and, and trying to survive it. Um, cause I, I, it wasn't really the inmates I was having a problem with. My, my problem was with the staff, um, mm-hmm. with the lack of transparency. If I file a complaint, then they was restricting me even more, the, the oppression of it. And then you give it, and, and it go on a little bit further, the lack of education that they give to somebody who's actually doing, like a juvenile lifer who's coming home, somebody who has a long intermediate sentence, they don't even give them the opportunity to even go to school or get in any kind of uh, sort of programs or anything, and then they go home stagnant. So you have two two layers of it, and P- PTSD is embodied inside of post-incarceration syndrome. But it's not mm-hmm. new because post-slavery, well, post-slavery on its face, when people were getting released off those uh, plantations, a lot of them mm-hmm. didn't really know what else to do because they were so abused to the abuse and, the, and things being a system of, 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 of human, humane, human rights violations that some of them actually came back to work the plant. They didn't know what else to do. They didn't have any skills. Right. All they wanted to do was work the fields um, or make the master's bed or eat, have sex with the master. 
uh, or right. whatever the case may be. So it, 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 it's, it's nothing new. Um, post-incarceration system is just like post-slavery system. system so. Yeah, and, you know, the trauma is affecting so many of us. The family members go through these traumas. The advocates go into these traumas. Like, good Lord, I've seen more snuff films of black people mm. killed in my lifetime than all of my ancestors have seen combined. Um, and that is because of video, you know. Uh, yeah. Our, our right. ancestors did have that. If they saw somebody died, it was because it was dead right in front of them physically. But with us, we're bombarded by this all the time. It's it's a secondary way of brutalizing us over and over yeah. and over again. Um, and it's and just I, horrible. And I just want to chime in. I want to chime in right there, something you just yes. mentioned. Um, I think the best way to actually give a person an actual picture of it is the Tyree Nichols situation. See, a lot of people, the one thing that they mm. haven't blown up in the news is that one of those officers was a correctional officer at one point, and he was right. sued for beating an inmate, but you don't see nothing about that. And it seems like the only time you have compassion for somebody, they died or got killed right in front of you in the right. open. But if it's behind closed doors, it's like, oh, whatever. You know what I mean? So getting a view inside of the prison is going to be is, is important which is why they do a great job of um, not being transparent and, and keeping the public out of their business so the, the prisoner complaint system gets handled in-house by the people who they're complaining on versus somebody outside. So I just wanted to touch on that part. Were you a military man by any chance? No, sir. All right. Nope. Um, cool. I, was just a, I was just a father <laughs> living in an impoverished neighborhood. Just trying to live. Um, there are quite a few military vets that are behind bars um, today. Uh, I think last I heard it was over half a million. Uh, did you see a lot of vets, and did they have, like, their own thing going on inside? Uh, actually, yes. Um, they have. You would, have you, would see, you would see the war vets in prison raising the flag. Um, they had almost like their own community in there. Um the problem having those vets in there that has a mental illness or whatnot is that um, they come in and they're already diagnosed with PTSD and there's no right. there's no place to actually help them because of the culture. You might go into a program that's a that's a, that's geared towards helping you deal with post traumatic stress disorder, but once you walk out of that program and back into the environment. It's business as usual, and nobody can learn or grow in that kind of environment because you still have to watch over your shoulder. Yes, yeah, um, it's, it's crazy, you know. Because I'm looking at a NBC news article where it says one in three vets has been arrested. Almost all male, ninety-eight percent, and more than. Two-thirds, and it cuts off on me, more than two-thirds were serving time for violent crimes compared to 57% of non-veterans in prison. Yeah, um, and, 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 and that's, not, that's not by coincidence, right? 
Um, if you think about how many mental health institutions they shut down and just criminalize you for being mentally ill, um, it is it's no different than um, the, the, them scouting you from um, from elementary school as being a troubled child, uh, like they scouting somebody for college, uh, they scouting you for prison. Um, and in this case, it would be um, to the extent that uh, uh, somebody with a mental illness that they know have a mental illness, uh, they don't feel like that they're worth a destiny, especially black community. It's like when you have 20, 18 to 22% of the budget is for police and, and correctional and corrections, and only 35 to 3.8% is for Department of Health and Human Services. They, that mm-hmm. shows that they're being more pro, uh, uh, reactive than proactive, and it shows, and it, it, what it reveals is that they don't feel, especially in uh, impoverished black and brown communities, that we are worth investing in. By all accounts, from what I understand, there is, as you said, PTSD just from being a vet and serving overseas, watching your friends die, or being involved in killing yourself, and being trained as a killer, and then to come back and have to try to shut all of that off, shut all those memories off. Um, you can't. And also, a lot of those people that come in back with this type of teaching and understanding of life and death become correctional officers or they become police officers yeah. and they, they don't turn it off yeah. then either. Um, you can't. As a matter of fact, right. Um, I, I have a track I want to share with uh, everybody, as a matter of fact, in regards to that. It's a secret military document that was unveiled about military racism. And uh, we're going to back that up with Brother Bob Marley doing Buffalo Soldier. Uh, you're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan today. We're joined by Marcus Kelly. And uh, we're going to listen to this track, and we'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Today. In 1943, Poet Langston Hughes wrote, You tell me that Hitler is a mighty bad man. I guess he took lessons from the Ku Klux Klan. I ask you this question because I want to know how long I got to fight both Hitler and Jim Crow. That poem perfectly sums up the life of a black soldier in World War II. And we call this episode of Facism the secret document. To truly understand, the colonel shows me a once secret document from 1925. It's from the Army War College, which at the time was where primarily white officers in the Army would go to further their military education. The subject is the use of Negro manpower in war. It's a hateful study the Army War College used right up to World War II, teaching officers about African-American soldiers. It's 60 pages, but its main points are summarized on page one. The Negro is physically qualified for combat duty. He is by nature subservient and believes himself to be inferior to the white man. He cannot control himself in the fear of danger. He has not the initiative and resourcefulness. He is mentally inferior to the white man. It turns back all of the great things that African-Americans had done. Due to this study and blatant racist stereotyping, African-Americans weren't allowed to fight until late in the war. And that's when Vernon Baker and so many others proved that study wrong. 
When the war ended, there are many accounts of our brave African-American soldiers elated to board the ship home, but upon their arrival, the gangplank to shore split with a sign that said, whites one way, coloreds the other. The war against Jim Crow was far from over. And back to that study, so to speak, mm -hmm. at the Army War College, you think about who it could have influenced. And you look at the graduates in that period they were using, mm -hmm. General Patton, General Eisenhower, who then became President right. Eisenhower. Right. And you wonder the effect it could have had on them. Absolutely, mm. absolutely.
Abolition. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, along with our guest, Marcus Kelly, out of Nevada. You just heard, sorry about that, you just heard a secret military document unveils uh, military racism, and that was accompanied by Buffalo Soldier by Bob Marley. And I like how in the clip, you know, they they referenced that uh, Beaumont to Detroit 1943 poem by Langston Hughes, and I mean, Mm -hmm. it really breaks down, and you know, and, and and it makes me think of my military days and, you know, just some of the things that I saw or experienced. And, you know, I've never even told my mother anything about what went on in the military. I, I just, just listening to all of that, I, I just realized that, like, I never mentioned anything. She uh, was always upset that uh, I wouldn't write her when I was in boot camp or when I went other places. I did call her from California a couple of times, but you know, I'm reflecting back just like, yeah, it was it was certain things that I was going through. And then when we just saw, like, you know, just the experience of prison and how many vets, one in three vets, you know, ends up in prison. So all of that stuff was just running through my mind just now. But, Marcus, it's all about you, brother. I'm glad you're here with us. And we'd like to hear uh, your, your, uh, any commentary or feedback you have with the track that you just heard. You may have muted yourself. Yeah, one thing, one thing I can say is uh, by hearing the track, I would just say powerful. Um, it, it, it put me, it just made me think about I was reading a research paper by Dr. Michael Kornick, uh, who is uh, the uh, mental health profes- um, professional in the University of um, Wisconsin. Uh, he's a, um, and he also sits on a board of um, mental health in the, that state's prison. Um, he did, he wrote an abstract stating that at least 95 or greater than 95 percent of people that's incarcerated at some point in time in their life or during incarceration will come home with um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and you think about the guys that are turned into killing machines and then are returned back to American soil and forced to live a regular normal life, that normal life don't show up the same. It shows up in uh, flashbacks. Uh, shows up in domestic violence. It shows up in alcohol or drug abuse. It shows up in um, prison abuse, where they get become correctional officers or police officers, and 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 take out some of those flashbacks or excessive, even including if they're a racist. Uh, they take that out on people because now they can, they are able to do that. Um, it just shows the need to bring awareness not only to post-incarceration syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder uh, with people incarcerated and returning home, but but also the need to to abolish slavery and involuntary servitude, which is the is which is the foundation for that for said issue. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in the audio in the first part, 
where they were talking about the secret documents, there was some false dichotomies and paradoxes going on. Effectively, they were saying that slavery broke these men. It broke them. Um, so they're worthless. Uh, they're cowards. Uh, they're not smart. Uh, they will run away from conflict and blah, blah, blah. This is what they were telling each other. And if they were telling each other that, you can be certain that they were also treating the black military men the same way, just as they did mm-hmm. with slavery. It was to break them. And prison's the same way. It's made to break you. So to change you, like you said, you had to adapt and become a different person because it's built to break you. It tortures you. It weighs on you. It oppresses you. And uh, the paradox is that black men were none of that when it came to fighting. You know, they might be broken, yes, but put the gun in their hand and say, go kill these people, and they would do it uh, in an exemplary fashion. You know, uh, they fought with honor and dignity. Uh, they led the way, and many of these conflicts could not have been won without their efforts. So what they said they were and what they were were two different things. But then they would go back, like after Vietnam, uh, traumatized and suffering, and uh, mm-hmm. get hooked on drugs, heroin. So many of my family members died from heroin and AIDS that it's just unbelievable from the Vietnam period. And the depression would set in, and a reflection of that would expand outward throughout their community. And I suspect it's the same thing with returning inmates coming home. Am, uh, am I along the right lines there, Brother Marcus? Um, actually, yes. Uh, I, I, I think it's, you can make the comparison to the, to the two, and it's basically the same. If, you were, if you're in the military and they recognize the post-traumatic stress disorder in that situation, then you can, you can because of the environment and the culture of war, or even through basic training, then you got to understand that it's no different than that of slavery and involuntary servitude in the prison culture. Um, they, one person told me that if, if they treat you like animals in prison, then they release animals to the street. Now, you can look at it in two ways. And one way it would be that they set the tone for people to, to put people that's come home from prison in a box um, of, it, of, it, of, of itself, just uh, kind of blackball you from certain jobs and pushing a certain community of people we would never hire or, you know, you know a box is hard to get out of. In another sense, it's, uh, it's, it's creating a mental illness in that particular person and then that broken thing that you said could happen where that person comes home and just don't know how to readjust anymore because he doesn't recognize himself. And that's and, and we talking about people who who may have been straight men and got raped or um or who tried to make their voice heard and was beaten all the way down by officers or like in my sense in my situation where I could have been assaulted when the officers tried to have the inmates assault me for standing up for myself. Um, the feeling of being of helplessness kind of wears in, but it also creates an inner anger that could be, you know what I'm saying, could be shown in domestic violence to where a person can finally speak up for herself and just so happen that his wife or his girlfriend gets the blunt of that. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I can 
we can go on about that. It's, it shows up in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, it's, yeah, just a reflection kind of uh, kind of kind of bothers me a little bit. I'm sorry about that, brother. I understand. Um, we get a little deep here, and sometimes we ask questions that aren't normally asked. Uh, and we show the truth, you know, um, about where things yeah. are. Uh, you know, these are systems that are made to break people. And how can you tell that they're broken or not? Well, um, you have to look at the recidivism rates for one thing. You know, within one year, yeah. nearly half of inmates go back. Within one single year, nearly half go back. Yeah. And within five years, almost 80% go back. Almost 80% end up right back in. Now, of course, there's a lot of railroading with things like technical probation and parole violations and things like that. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it's still nearly 80% recidivism rate, which is the highest in the world. Uh, I believe yes. in Norway, they only have 20% recidivism. So they're doing something we ain't doing here. Um, and yeah, and I know it's Norway, not all our fault. Go ahead, brother. Yes. Yeah, what they're doing in Norway is totally different than what Americans are doing. Um, they're not really they're not running their institutions like slaves, and they got more social workers than they do uh officers um, and so um yeah it's they they kind of gearing people up and, and have to helping them to transition when you think about the way prison is set up in America, if you are convicted of a crime whether you're guilty or not you, you like I said they put you in a box to where you can't get certain grants for college to, to pursue an education. Uh, you can't get certain, you can't get subsidized high housing. You can't get welfare. Um, so you already walking out the prison with a bunch of strikes against you, not just being black, but also having that label um, convicted felon. It's no different than having a label nigger, jigaboo, or, or whatever, back then that made it okay to hang you and set you on fire and have a picnic and watch you burn, and it's okay. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a plethora of other issues that they created when they, when they put this particular system together to put you in the system of slavery beyond the, uh, the prison walls that makes it possible for somebody to have nothing, nobody else really to turn to but the system. With the amount of money that we spend on incarceration uh, and these criminal justice systems across the country, you would think that we would have a much, much lower recidivism rate. When you see it this high, it makes you think that they're using you as reusable resources. They want you to come back, to keep filling those beds, if not Absolutely. just as a form of punishment towards you for just being who you are, but on top of that, to keep the money flowing. Um, do you see it that way as well, Marcus? Uh, actually, yes. Um, again, that goes back to, like I mentioned before, you, you find out what somebody's priority is by what they spend their money and time on. And in this in this situation, they spend more money and more in costs to arrest people and stuff like that than to than in the Department of Human Health and Human Services that will provide mental health treatment, uh, community centers in the neighborhood, uh, things like that. I mean, 3.8% versus 22%. Um, that's that's a big difference. 
So, and we know that where, where you find poverty, you'll find crime. Um, right. So, in this sense, it is, it's not reducing the crime rate. It's not reducing the prison population. Uh, I believe America is just as interested in, in, in getting rid of mass incarceration as they was in getting rid of the chattel slavery in the 19th century or whatever. Um, I don't think they want to. I think they love the system of it, uh, the systemic uh, racism. I think white supremacy is embedded in, within the fabric of the United States of America, and everything is designed. And they did, a, they did a, a hell of a job designing it, but everything is really designed to oppress you. Mm-hmm. Um, prison was not ever meant to educate or rehabilitate anybody because slavery wasn't. Slavery was meant to just break you and make you work for them. Um, well, prison is set up the same way. Um, so, no, I think, I, think they, I think they set everything up exactly how they wanted to be. I think the reason is 18 to 22% invested in police in um, prisons and 35 to 3.8 invested into the Department of Health and Human Services for the sole purpose of reactionary and not proactive not proactive meaning we just come to lock you up we don't give we don't care about your mental health even if you were war vet we don't care we, we put you in prison so we get more money for you sitting behind bars in michigan they get 33 to 38,000 a year per inmate and about mm-hmm. 90,000 if the per, if the inmate is on medication and even more if they're juvenile or and even more if they're juvenile correct right so um why 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 would i help you this is like trying to cure cancer. Why would I cure cancer when I get more money uh, treated? Yes. And, you know, you made a very clear point, poignant point, in connecting this to poverty, right? And, you know, yes. poverty is where over-policing is occurring. And when I mentioned about the recidivism rate being 76%, nearly 80%, of those uh, nearly 80%, 78% of that are for property crimes. So almost, almost all of the recidivism comes from property crimes. People who have been convicted of property crimes, which is crimes of poverty, not against another person, property crimes. 78% of prisoners are arrested after five years who have been committed for property crimes. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Um and I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna tell you something else that I've, I learned being out here in Missouri these few months. Missouri has two separate police unions. Um, police uh, is a union that represents the white cops, the white racist cops, and is a uh, and they got one for just the black cops because they have a racist force, and they admit that they have a racist force. Now, in all actuality, that's considered that's called that's called segregation, um, and they was able to legally do it here, and it's been going on for like the last 14 years. And like I and I had a conversation with the on the the new incoming captain. And I said, "Well, how am I supposed to feel protected and safe with you protect with you patrolling my community if you already know that your your police force is racist?" And he re, he didn't really have a comeback, but to say it was different times in the Mike Brown era in 2014, and they try he came to try to make changes on it, but at the end of the day. The force still has a, a, a representation for black cops and then a separate representation for the white racist cops. Missouri is a beast, man. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. Reported, 
uh, Missouri for a long time. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of things that occurred, like the Mike Brown incidents and Kajami Powell down there. Even I have had my own experiences with the police in Missouri. When I went down to receive the Missouri Court Cures Mark Taylor Human Rights Award, I was informed by the police union that if I came down there talking that anti-cop crap, I would go home in a box. Uh, that's the type of environment that's going on in Missouri. So you're, you've got your hands full if Missouri's next on your list uh, to remove the slavery exception clause. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a, it's a whole different animal. I just joined uh, the Freedom Community Center now, um, and uh, which I actually start with them in a couple of weeks out here. So I'm about to start kicking it off here now. <laughs> you know, on top of all of this, they keep trying to tell us how we're happy. You know, like we're telling you we're traumatized and the large majority of us are traumatized, but they keep giving us happy slave commentary from people like Tim Scott and we're living the American dream and it's our own fault if we don't make it. Uh, as if he went so far as to say that America is not a racist country, you know, and he's not the only one. It's a lot of them out there that not only say is America not racist and not built on racism, but the real races are the black people. And that's from right. the president of the United States when Trump was saying that, and it's still saying it, how he is subject to racism from prosecutors in places like New York, etc. We have suddenly become the racist. Uh, we're the ones now that are the monsters, according to the narrative. Do you hear that often, too? Um Oh uh, yeah, I, I, I heard. I had a conversation with uh, with a with a with an Uber guy actually. He was a Trumper, and yeah, he made that comment before. I just kind of, I just kind of blew it off. It's, it's it's easy for somebody like a Tim Scott or even a um, Clarence Thomas that's on the Supreme Court to make those particular comments because um, you know they 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 got a little money, they're well off, they're black and they're well off, and they don't they want to disassociate themselves with black people. So they try what they would say is I'm not as black as this person. <laughs> so, um, which is terrible. Um, just like, just like cops. They you hear people, oh, it was the black cops that killed Tim Nick, uh, Ty- uh, Tyree Nichols. I'm like, well, that's because you have a racist policing system. And if you get you put any color inside of a, a racist system, and you're gonna see racist stuff. So those black cops right. in that particular situation wanted to show their counterparts that they're not as black as this person. So, it's, I mean, it's disgusting, but... It is very much so. It's like the Willie Lynch letter come to life, <laughs> you know? And we see it all the time. And from the beginning of it all, they've always claimed about how they treated us well and how they're doing the best for us and how we were happy slaves. And, you know, even in the prisons. I remember in Mississippi when the entire state's prison uh, was uncovered as corrupt. Uh, and the director of the prisons in Mississippi, Christopher Epps, was taking all of these kickbacks in the millions and millions of dollars, giving himself and the prison system a 100% rating, favorable rating from the uh, prison association, which he happened to be the president of, to find out that they were cesspits uh, pits of hell. They were just incredibly inhumane conditions that people were existing under and he was giving out these no big contracts for getting these kickbacks so that he could get rich on how many of his and this was a black man 
on how many of his own brothers and sisters could fill these prisons up and be treated like animals in crimes against humanity. While all the while talking about how great things were and how happy everybody right. was. You know? Right. And the, um, the, go ahead. Well, no, nah, I was going to uh, tell you guys, I got I to gotta get ready to get off of that. Uh, um, so it's, I kind of ran over a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, you did. Uh, all right, brother. Well, we appreciate your time being here with us. Is there anything that you'd like to tell the audience before you leave? Any websites you want to send them to? Um, well, I want you, uh, the audience to check out American Greetings by Erica Washington. Um, and I want uh, um, just to get out and vote. Um, look at the issues. Look at who's a part of the issues. Who wants to raise those issues. And if you don't want slavery and involuntary servitude in your constitution, to actually uh, voice that and, and get out and vote. Thank you, uh, Brother Marcus Kelly. We appreciate you being here with us today. Hopefully you'll come back again and share some success stories with us or battle stories about Missouri. Oh, oh I, I look forward to it. Y'all brothers, take it easy. Thanks for having me. All right. Peace, brother. Yeah, thank you for coming through, brother. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to open up the phone lines for at least one call um, before we go into our next musical break. Uh, so if you have something to say or comment or question, the number is 515-605-9814. If you're already on the line, just press 1 on your keypad if you have a question or comment. Um, and excluding that we have any of those, I'll start leading us into our next track. So let me look at the board. Nope, no hands up. Looks All clear right. to me. Looks clear to me. All right, so what I want to play next is exactly that, the whole happy slaves fallacy, how we are so pleased in our condition. It's a couple of white women that I found on TikTok, so I can't really give uh, attributed to anybody in particular because I was unable to find their names, uh, but they were arguing, debating over the happy slaves fallacy. So you're going to listen to that followed by Rhiannon Giddens, Julie. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. If we go back like a couple hundred years, it was pretty normal to own slaves. Is that right or correct? Why are we talking about slavery? Because I'm showing you why the ad populum fallacy is a logical fallacy. Honestly, back then, a lot of black people participated in the slave trade themselves. So Yeah, that doesn't make slavery right. Are you trying to defend slavery? It was slavery? a product of the time, dude. It are was you trying to defend slavery? Did you not see Matt Walsh's new video on this topic? I did, and I think that defending slavery is cringe as Defending slavery, but I think we're illogical if we didn't realize that a lot of black people enjoyed being slaves back when slavery was a thing. Um, well, how do you know that black people enjoyed being slaves? I mean, it's just in history. I've like read about it. like a lot of black people not only participated in capturing slaves, but a lot of black people enjoyed being slaves because, of course, when you're when you're really? brought up doing something like being a slave your whole life, it's all you know. I'm sure a lot of slaves probably enjoyed it and were happy because that's the only lifestyle they were aware of. That's crazy. Can you not like? Can you not think like that? Like, is it really that dense? I have never like, heard of somebody enjoying having to work countless hours on a plantation being dehumanized and whipped and told they're not human and being beaten within an inch of their life and being saying that I don't okay. think that people I'm enjoy that. You can't deny the fact that there were probably slave owners that just like there were really bad ones, there were probably slave owners that probably treated their slaves really nice too, right? Like you're not thinking logically. You're being so dense. 
So I'm just going to say that in general, I think it's wrong to own humans. Of course. We're not in that time period anymore. But you're defending slavery. I'm not defending it. I'm saying it was a product of the time. You said that black people enjoy being slaves. I think there were probably a good majority of black people who back then were born and raised as slaves, probably because that's the only thing they knew. It was the environment they grew up in. If they had a slave owner who treated them well, they probably enjoyed their lives, a few of them. I think it's illogical to believe that every person who was a slave back then hated their life. I truly think that's illogical. I do. I'm pretty sure that being owned is not a good thing. Because you grew up in this generation and this is what you've been taught. And we know these things now. No. But back then, those societal standards were not created yet. Not just because I grew up in this generation, but because I can think logically and morally on this topic and why it is unfair to own another human based off of their birth as having like a certain skin color, for example. That's, that's unfair. I'm pretending and like I'm illogical. saying it's okay to own slaves now because that's not what I'm insinuating. You are defending slavery. I'm not defending it. I'm just giving you the facts. Aren't you all about facts over feelings? Yeah. And I believe that slavery is immoral. Right. But, and I do too. But the fact was back then, I think you're illogical you if you think that some of them didn't enjoy being slaves or enjoy their lives. Why would anyone enjoy being a slave? That's the environment you grew up in. That's all you've ever known. So if you grew up in that environment and you have a slave owner who treats you well, that's just all they know. So they probably were happy about it. They didn't know freedom. Why is it so hard for you to understand this? What does like a, a slave owner treating their slave well look like? I mean, back then, I'm sure some of them, I'm pretty sure they said them, right? Or probably that like they weren't whipping anybody or like not tormenting anyone. Just like, I don't have like specific details. Oh, okay. As long as you're working inhumane hours on plantation, but you're being fed, then that's a good thing. Again, I'm not saying slavery was a good thing. You're not going to like try to make it seem like that's what I'm saying because I don't know what you want me to say. If you want to believe that every person back then who was a slave hated their life, go for it.
Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. You just heard two white women on TikTok debating the happy slave fallacy, and that was followed by Rihanna Giddens, Julie. And I think <laughs> it's summed up right in the end of the song right there when she says, Mistress, oh mistress, don't you cry. The price of staying here is too high. Mistress, oh mistress, I wish you well, but I'm leaving here. I'm leaving hell. Right, the gold yeah. of my kids. Yeah, you know, we had a lot. Wow. We've heard a, we've heard a lot of happy slaves right here on this program. We played them. We played uh, actual people who had been enslaved, talking about how well they were treated. Uh, we played clips from people during the civil rights efforts who was talking about uh, how well they were being treated. Even one woman who was living in a shack with flies all over the place, trash, garbage, and about to- thirteen kids. <laughs> talking about how well the white people took care of them, um, you know. And we've heard it from others like Tim Scott's of the world and many others. Right. But they do not represent the, the, the large uh, proportion of community. They represent those who have been broken, <laughs> that, that have been broken. And, you, you know, this right. media loves to per- parade them out there like they did with uh, Dr. Phil. And they had this guy come out there for the black civil rights icon. And he explains how almost 2,700 black people owned 12,000 slaves. And should we be getting reparations from them? At no point in his conversation did he think to himself, you know, if I was free and black during the period of chattel slavery, I might buy some of my family. You know what I mean? I may own them, but they're my family. So I'm going to go ahead and buy some of my family. And most of the black slave owners during that period only had one to three uh, people that they owned. And often they were family members they had bought out of slavery. And this guy never even considered that might be a point. He just thought that these were uh, Negro PN slavers, and they need to be held accountable. And if you're going to make white man pay, you better make them Negro PNs pay too. Um, it's just a, a horrible thing to even say out loud, let alone right. try to expect people to look at you as a reasonable person by spouting this anti-black nonsense. No, there is no such thing as a happy slave. Yes, 
black people can find joy anywhere. We can find happiness anywhere during any period. We can, I know men who are in solitary confinement who can laugh at a joke, who can cry right. when they, their children call them, who can have love with somebody on the outside. You know, these are human conditions we can experience while being subject to crime suffering. against humanity. Yeah, right. while suffering. All right. I know we had many moments where we goofed off like crazy inside, but no one lost the fact that where we were. They never lost and, sight of where we were. They made the best of bad situations. That's what we had to do. Uh, we ate the pig's guts, and we made it delicious. We ate the roaches of the sea, and now they're right. called the delicacy lobster. Um, you know, right. we made anything that we had to the best of our capabilities, something beautiful. That was what we did and still do. But it does not reduce what is happening. If George Washington was a kind slave owner, it doesn't take away the fact that he was a slave owner. Right. How can you own someone and still be considered nice? Right. No such thing as good slave catchers. Like there's no happy slaves. All right. Wow. Well, what a show, brother. Yeah, it's been a blessing, especially finally meeting up with Brother Marcus and his wife, um, you know, and getting uh, in contact with the Nevada campaign. That was the only campaign that I haven't had a direct hand in. You know what I mean? Like I haven't been personally involved in. Uh, so right. it's nice to have them back here and just in time too because it's going on the ballot and we need to get people out to vote in Nevada in 2024 for that got some good news out in New York too they said that uh, their bill is moving forward and has uh, quite a few co-sponsors the problem is it's not going to get on the ballot till like 25 so 2024 and 2025 are going to be active for the slavery abolitionist movement with the remaining states that we need to get to 39 um, and 2023 is looking good too Tuesday, Louisiana goes into the Senate hearings where we hope that they'll finally remove that exception to the exception and get the pure language in there. And California passed its committee hearings as well and is moving forward. Right. Right. Oh, and so Ohio submitted theirs as well, their bill. Yeah. <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's 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 good. That's good to know. Huge uphill battle, but we celebrate every time. You know, we get one at least out of a out of the committees, and you know, get them passing the House or passing the Senate in both. And yeah, it definitely well, gives relief. They're, they're fighting against us, though, Yusuf. Uh, they're trying to pass laws now heavily that will raise the. Uh, the, raise the bar of what you got to achieve. Like, like for instance, in a uh, general vote, you need 50 plus one, so 51 percent vote, and it's it's in. They're trying to change that to 60 percent in Ohio. 60, you know? right? Yeah, 60 percent, just to make it more difficult yeah. for us to end slavery. And they even use slavery as the example of why they want to do it. Remember, like these lunatics in huh? Oregon or. Uh, they didn't say Oregon. What did they say? They said Portland. Uh, yeah. Portland. These lunatics. I mean, uh, Portland. yeah, Portland. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, we got about three minutes left for closing up and cleaning up. Any final comments from you, brother? 
Uh, just, again, great show. It was great having Marcus on. Uh want to jump into thanking our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sama Urge, that's Quakers up, Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Coffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash abolition today, and also our Abolition Today Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at, at Abolition1. That's the number one, Abolition Today 1. Uh, another announcement, Tales from the Plantation, hosted by Samuel Nathaniel Brown, airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific, right here on the Abolition Today platform. Uh, that's a really powerful episode. Last week, Sam covered uh, the mentality of the person that's getting ready to go to prison. He had a young gentleman on who was getting ready to go serve time. And so he, along with someone else, was explaining, you know, some of the the things for the brother to avoid and how to prepare himself for coming home. It's a really good episode. So you get the opportunity, check that out. And, of course, check out all of our archives as well. Uh, tonight's Bridging the Gap will be, uh, Ozzie Davis reading Frederick Douglass's or Frederick Douglass uh, Part 16 on Dishonest Abe, <laughs> followed by Black Soldiers by Grant B, featuring Deontay and Bryce. We'll be back live next Sunday again, June 4th, my birthday, with another masterclass on slavery abolition. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace out, Max. Peace, Yusuf. Peace, fam. Abolition. 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 In my efforts to secure just and fair treatment for the colored soldiers, I went to Washington to lay the complaints of my people before President Lincoln and the Secretary of War and to urge upon them such action as should secure to the colored troops then fighting for the country a reasonable degree of fair play. I was never more quickly or more completely put at ease in the presence of a great man than in that of Abraham Lincoln. As I approached and was introduced to him, he rose and extended his hand and bade me welcome. Proceeding to tell him who I was and what I was doing, he promptly but kindly stopped me, saying, I know who you are, Mr. Douglas. Mr. Seward has told me all about you. Sit down. I'm glad to see you. I then told him the object of my visit, and that there were three particulars which I wished to bring to his attention. First, that colored soldiers ought to receive the same wages as those paid to white soldiers. Second, that colored soldiers ought to receive the same protection when taken prisoners, and be exchanged as readily and on the same terms as any other prisoners. And if Jefferson Davis should shoot or hang colored soldiers in cold blood, the United States should retaliate in kind and degree without delay upon Confederate prisoners in its hand. Third, when colored soldiers performed great and uncommon service on the battlefield, they should be rewarded by distinction and promotion, precisely as white soldiers are rewarded for like services. Mr. Lincoln listened with patience and silence to all I had to say. He began his earnest reply by saying that the employment of colored troops at all was a great gain to the colored people, that the measure could not have been successfully adopted at the beginning of the war, 
that the wisdom of making colored men soldiers was still doubted, that their enlistment was a serious offense to popular prejudice, that they had larger motives for being soldiers than white men, that they ought to be willing to enter the service upon any conditions, that the fact that they were not to receive the same pay as white soldiers seemed a necessary concession to smooth the way to their employment at all as soldiers, but that ultimately they would receive the same. On the second point, in respect to equal protection, he said the case was more difficult. Retaliation was a terrible remedy and one which it was very difficult to apply. He thought that the rebels themselves would stop such barbarous warfare and less evil would be done if retaliation were not resorted to. On the third point, he appeared to have less difficulty, though he did not absolutely commit himself. He simply said that he would sign any commission to colored soldiers whom his secretary of war should commend to him. Though I was not entirely satisfied with his views, I was so well satisfied with the man and with the educating tendency of the conflict that I determined to go on with the recruiting. I was not satisfied either with my interview with Secretary of War Stanton, yet I left in the full belief that the true course to the black man's freedom and citizenship was over the battlefield and that my business was to get every black man I could into the Union armies. Both the President and Secretary of War assured me that justice would ultimately be done to my race, and I gave full faith and credit to their promise. Left, 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 right, left. My dad went to war and became a G.I. Joe. He came home, couldn't get the G.I. Bill, though. That was affirmative action, but only for the white folks. Impatiently you waited for Lincoln's proclamation Ending plantations in this nation But that's not what's stated on his New Year's declaration Blatantly he said that only slaves in confederation Are the ones emancipated What about Cousin Joe, Mary Ann, Caitlin Slaves on the Northern Maryland plantation Can you feel elated when those of your relation Are still stuck in damnation just because of their location You're feeling agitated, it builds to aggravation While the others celebrating some alter aspiration You're feeling like the Haitian when he started revolution Should be cruising, strapped and shooting, clapping masses Ovation, quit your occupation though Killers not your station You roll dough and cut potatoes You know J-Lo in the making You're gonna need some training Proclamation calls for black participation 54th Massachusetts Infantry You gonna take I don't it. know what you been told Black soldiers were brave and bold Fight for democracy overseas Better home, no justice they receive Tell me what would you do with yourself in they shoes hey. you fight for a country who don't even fight for you hey. you die for some rights when yours are abused hey. you kill for a cause Fifty years ago, your father was a slave. It's evident it's arrogant to think freedom made southerners benevolent. Cause prejudice is obviously here. It's not the elephant you're hesitant to thank God. But this war is heaven sent. Biden in the first war war could be the precedent. That's your race is relevant. More than just residents. You're opposite of pessimists. You sign up for that regiment. Harlem hell fighters, black skin's the only requisite. You're loaned out to France and you feel they're so affectionate. From whites, you're not separate. You're treated so excellent. You start to think that Europe should be your new place of residence. Cause looking at your skin doesn't make people so hesitant. Fight and earn the name Black Death. Kill a specialist. But only France or World Javala, they make you a medalist. German propaganda says to switch side in the exodus. Would you fight for country where racism is prevalent? I don't know what you've been told. Black soldiers were brave and bold. Fight for democracy overseas. Better home, no justice. They receive. Tell me what would you do with yourself in they shoot? Hey. Fight 
It's no wonder Kaepernick couldn't just stand up and be quiet. He must have read about those red summer race riots. Where black soldiers who served their World War I assignment came home to a murderous, racist, violent climate. How the Tuskegee Airmen, the world's finest, never lost a bomber when escorting their assignment. Protecting white pilots, lies flying like linemen. They came home to see giant whites only signing. 54th Mad, died in full wag, 9th and 10 cab. They were all black and ended up dying for a country that defied them. The liberty that's implied in the flag that William Harvey Carney gave his life flying while some continue griping about a man protesting silent i'm admiring black veterans who fought for his rights and they are the brave this is their home even though it calls them slaves in the third verse of the song no refuge could save the hiring and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave and the dark said he wasn't even going free to slaves. Abolition. 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 Hi, my name is Jeanette Smith. I am a slavery abolitionist. Some of you may know me. I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance. Max and Yusuf do not like to ask for money, so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets and this is so important so if you can help you can find the information at the top of the Facebook page for abolition today thank you if we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble we would have picked our own fucking cotton